So you've got that really great idea and now you need to start getting the money. Well, most of you will go in and just start blanket cold calling VCs and that is absolutely positively not the way to go. In fact, our guest today is going to talk to you about specifically how to find VCs. That's right. We're going to talk to someone who was a VC and now is their own CEO and founder. Someone who's gone the reverse angle and has done it very, very well. So today on the podcast, let's sit back and take a listen on how to talk to, how to find, how to connect with, and how to make VCs your very own. Well, today on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Wills. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have Paul Josephak join. He is the CEO and co-founder of Receive. It's a newly launched company with a vision of creating a completely digital approach to collections. He has been a VC for a number of years. He worked for a lot of really great uh, partners and solutions and labs. The guy's got a great resume. He also has been straddling living in the U.S. and in Europe and has a unique perspective on international expansion. The big thing for Paul is how to find, talk to, and engage with the VCs, the investors, how to get your money. Now, most of you are going to go, frankly, the wrong way about it. So let's sit back and listen to Paul as he talks about the right way to connect with VCs. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I am excited today. Have a special guest. This will be an interesting conversation. I've got Paul Josephak. We're going to talk a lot about investing, ventures, funding, money, how to get it, how to lose it, how to mess it up royally. And Paul also has this unique perspective of having one foot in the U.S. and one foot in Europe. Um, sometimes his foots are lifted off of one and more firmly planted than the others. But he has this unique point of view in terms of uh, you know understanding both continents and how to and how not to do business between the two of them. So, Paul, welcome. Happy to have you on the call today. Thanks for having me, and I'm so happy you didn't butcher my name, which I'm so used to. So, <laughs> hats off on the, on a good start on that on that foot. <laughs> yeah, I've I've known you long enough that I've worked through the the possible permutations of the the last name. So so I'm glad we could just overcome that hurdle pretty quickly and not get stuck up on that one. So, Paul, do me a favor. Uh, I have everybody introduce themselves a little bit. I, I gave a little bit of a point of view from you, but you know you've got this rich background. Tell us tell us about it. Yeah, so I guess I'm um, I'm a bit of an anomaly in the whole in the whole scheme of things. So I've I've basically been based out of Europe almost my whole career. I was over here when I was in high school for a year as an exchange student, and then basically um, kind of ended up. I don't want to say getting stuck here. I did it by choice, but um, built you know built my career here, um, and it spans you know consulting, startups. I was at a law firm for a while, um, mostly venture capital, which is probably the brunt of my time here. And, um, and then a little bit of company building and now back to, uh, back to launching a startup. Um, and primarily I spent, uh, I spent six years at SAP Ventures, as it was then called, uh, running Europe for that, uh, for that fund, um, now known as Sapphire Ventures. And then I left that group to join a local regional, um, early stage fund, um, to get kind of on the other side of the, I don't want to say other side of the table to use Mark Suster's term, but, um, but I wanted to get out of the corporate VC world into the private VC world. And, uh, 
since you're only considered a real VC, if you actually go out and fundraise, um, that was kind of my, uh, my driving motivation to go to the regional fund. And then once I kind of transitioned out of there, I, I was still, I think I was in my thirties. Yeah, I definitely was still in my thirties. I kind of asked myself, do I want to be a VC for the next 20 or 30 years or do I want to get my kind of feet wet? So that's what drove me back to um, company building for a large German retailer um, who happens to own, for example, Crate and Barrel in the U.S. And, uh, and did that for also six and a half years. And, uh, and now I've come full circle and uh, <laughs> I'm launching a startup again. So, um, I, you know, most people start out as an entrepreneur and become a VC. Um, I think I took a little bit of a reverse, uh, a reverse course to get to where I am now. Yeah, well, I, you know, to some degree, I guess it doesn't matter which way around the dial you go. You still ended up in the in the same place, and you and you've had this amazing journey along the way. Again, I, I use the word unique when I started because I, I I really do. I haven't heard anyone have quite the background, the litany of experiences that you've had, and I think this is where it's going to be so interesting to have you um, on the podcast and, and start diving into some of these. So, so let's you know let's go ahead and do that, right? We're talking to founders. We're talking to people that are starting. Now, some of these are the, you know, the unicorns in Silicon Valley. Some of them are mom and pops, you know, solopreneurs that are trying to start their own thing someplace around the globe. So let's, let's first talk a little bit about, you know, you've got this great experience perspective on um, companies that are coming in and looking for funding and the approach that they take. Let's just start kind of open-ended there and start talking a little bit about what you've seen on both sides of the table, so to speak, of you know, companies coming in and the, the funding choices that they make and how they go about looking for it. So um, let's, let's start with kind of the VC side of it. That's where I spent, I think, the majority of my time seeing a lot of mistakes made. And um, I don't know if you've heard this before, and maybe it's even cliched at this point, but one of the biggest problems that I think people um, almost completely underestimate when it comes to raising capital is, is kind of the extent of the relationships you need to have. Um, so to kind of answer it from one perspective, one of the one of the things when it comes to raising capital is that you have to have relationships that have been built um, not just to the VCs, but to people who might potentially introduce you to the VCs. And I think that this is where a lot of people underestimate the amount of work and effort you have to put in up front to be in a position to go and raise money. And I think the thing that I've seen so often is that and usually younger founders, right? So uh, we're not talking about someone who's done it five times or someone who's been around the block a couple of times, but kind of first-time founders, they approach venture capital um, having read a lot of online things, you know, be it, be it VC or startup-oriented, um, and they get, they get almost a little bit of too of a rosy picture of it. Um, they, they see the unicorns. Um, everyone wants to be a unicorn, but they're called unicorns for a specific reason. They are so few and far between. And the reality is that, you know, anyone out raising money, the chance of that being successful um, and becoming a unicorn is so small um, that you have to try and optimize um, for, you know, for, for the fundraise. And, and if you're going to be successful fundraising, you're not going to be cold calling and you're not going to, you know, have light introductions. You need to make sure that you're being put in front of VCs where someone who knows them well is recommending you um, or you're so good that someone is going to be willing to really kind of put their or stick their neck out for you um, when it comes to uh, making those introductions. And so if I were to focus on one thing when it comes to raising money, it's uh, you better have a really good network or a couple of really strong people in your network 
who know you well and who are going to vouch for you because you're not, you know, you're not going to cold call a VC and raise money. Well, and, and that's one of the things that, that I saw quite often was um, from founders or sorry, from investors themselves, you know, Bruce Cleveland was on a couple of weeks ago. His, his podcast goes live in a few weeks. And, you know, in particular, he talked about just the spray and pray approach, you know, that he gets hundreds of cold call pitches in his inbox almost on a daily basis. And the sheer volume of it is immeasurable. There's no way to tackle it. And he's like, why would I do business with you? I don't know you and you haven't taken the time to get to know me. Exactly. And I mean, the other thing is I, I basically, as a VC, had the same problem. Maybe not as much of, a, of an inflow as US VCs. So, I mean, we would all VCs talk about how many business plans they get. I mean, that number is always such a bullshit number anyway because <laughs> it's usually propped up. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of spammy shit you get. That I don't consider, you know, business plans that have been submitted. But just like you said, there's the spray and pray guys that, you know, every VC is getting just bombarded by this stuff. And I mean, these are, these are even, you know, emails that you can basically tell it's been automated, where it's like, you have to be completely insane to try and raise money that way by, by, you know, spraying the whole market. Um, and then the second point is that, you know, a lot of people think that it's your business plan, which is going to get you the money. I mean, there's, there's some great business plans out there and some great decks. But again, you, you need to get that introduction and you need to get in front of um, a partner or uh, multiple you know, players at a fund to have any chance of ever raising money from them because it really is a people business. And the whole, you know, depending on your pitch deck and spray and pray, don't even bother. I mean, that's, I, I'm just, you know, maybe someone got lucky with that at some point along the way, but um, I, we never funded, I mean, I literally in almost a span of 20 years, never funded one company that came in unsolicited. Um, and I would presume the majority of the VCs are going to have the exact same comment. So do you have some examples of, of, you know, people that who did it, who did it right? Cause I'm hearing you loud and clear that it really is a relationship business. You know, walk us through a, a, a war story of, you know, somebody who sort of built the relationship and went about it the right way. And yeah, they, they got the goods and they've got the pitch deck and they know how to articulate themselves, but they really built the relationship and looked at, at the focus on that and did it really well. So I actually have like a, I have the perfect example for this. Uh, and this is one I talk about all the time. I, I had met, um, they were originally it was four founders or it was a group of four guys, um, who, um, I, I started way back when, um, this had to be, I'm thinking it's like 2006 timeframe. Um, there was a thing that a guy, a U.S. uh, sorry, um, a UK based VC started a thing called the open coffee club. And it was, it was basically like the attempt uh, in Europe to do kind of office hours. And what he did is he, he set up shop at a coffee place in London and said, you know, I'm going to be here for an hour or two, stop by if you have any questions and I'm happy to, you know, meet anyone and everyone, um, who, who stops in. Most of these things eventually died because you'd have hundreds of people show up <laughs> as you can imagine. So just like the spray and pray strategy, eventually all got overrun. But I started the first one of these open coffee things um, in Hamburg, where I was based at the time. And I had you know, these four founders who were actually, I think they were still students at the time, if I remember correctly. Um, they, like, they would show up to every event, almost to the point where I was like, guys, you know, sorry, you got to give someone else a chance to ask some questions. Um, and, and they were, you know, they were actually quite, uh, quite persistent and kind of speed it all up. They, you know, they spent a lot of time there. They were even to an extent kind of helping me sort of organize the event to an extent. 
And they ended up asking me so many questions um, that, you know, they basically built a, built a case around what they were starting where I said, look guys, you know, come on in and, you know, p- actually pitch me what you're doing. Um, they didn't ask for money. They asked for my advice. And that's something that I basically say every time, if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. It's an old, it's an old, uh, you know, statement. It's cliche at this point, but they did exactly that. And they did it the right way that they asked me so many questions that I actually got kind of excited about the opportunity. And I mean, these were, these were first time founders. These guys had never done it before. They had never actually worked a job and it, it, it ended up being, Two of the four of them ended up launching a business. Um, I wrote a check for 500K um, to seed the company, 500,000 euro, um, with, you know, basically uh, a vision of what they wanted to build. And because they had built such a strong relationship with me and because they had spent so much time, I was willing to basically just bet on the, the founders. The idea um, was, was, I mean, it was a super interesting idea at the time. This was pre-iPhone. So it was basically a dating app um, or not even a dating app. It was more like dating via SMS. Um, it was a very Euro Europe uh, specific type thing because of how SMSs were working here at the time. And the idea was good initially. Um, but you know, again, we had built a relationship as investor and founders. I like the guys a lot. Um, they're still friends, you know, to this day, um, that business actually ended up going extremely sideways because we underestimated what, what would happen in this quasi dating channel that was set up. Um, without going into too many details, we had um, problems with almost pedophile type of situations where we ended up shutting down the business and they still had a couple hundred thousand in the bank. And I said, look, you know, I don't want my money back. You guys figure out what you're going to do next. And so they, they pivoted the company, um, built a whole new business, and we ended up selling, selling that company. It was called Abrupt. Uh, we ended up selling it to Opera, um, the Opera software, which most people know um, um, from their browsers. Um, and I think they also have a mobile mobile browser. And so long story short, um, that was the perfect case of, you know, getting to know me. Um, I took a bet on these guys. Um, they even failed with their first attempt, but because we had a good relationship and I liked, you know, that they were persistent and were always learning, um, I was willing to continue betting on them when the, when the first idea went sideways. And ever since they sold that company, we've remained friends and, uh, you know, I have lunch with these guys regularly and, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll work together at some point in the future. So. Um, well, you know, that's, that's was, a good way to go about it. Yeah, it was interesting because you, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, you said it's cliche a, a few times about a few of these, but uh, I think this is this is one of those things where uh, of the seventy people or so that were interviewed last year, I'd say I'd heard this story or some version of it uh, maybe ten, twelve times, where it's it's the relationship with the person. Yes, you you can see some stars with the business model, and there's some interesting things about the space. But you're really betting, especially at those earliest stages, you're betting on the founders. You're betting on the DNA of the people and the relationship of the the people, and you're putting your trust in them. And that comes from having a personal or building a personal relationship with them and, and the way that they did it, which was um, you know, native and natural and and trying to build a relationship with you and you in turn in, you know, invested and bet on them. Not so much the idea to agree to agree, yes, mm-hmm. but really you bet on them. And uh, I've heard that one sort of time and time again. And the spray and pray approach completely bypasses that, and that's why it's so um, uninteresting and unsuccessful. 
Yeah, there's also there's a there's another war story that I have about this one, which is a kind of maybe answering a little bit of a different um, a different topic. But um, there was another guy. Um, this is kind of a little bit of the reverse of this, where um, I had one of my partners came to me at um, at the local fund I was at here in Hamburg, and said, "Look, I got this. I got this founder who wants to start this business." And at that time, I think Dropbox had already been started, and Box. I don't think had launched at the time. And basically what my partner at my fund said to me is he's like, look, as a founder, he basically wants to do Dropbox for corporates. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I don't even want to, I don't even want to discuss this because we're in Germany and Germans with their, their um, privacy and, um, and all kinds of regulatory issues around, you know, what corporations do here with data back then data in the cloud, Mm -hmm. people were very slow to adopt to the cloud. Uh, I was like, you know, this guy's got to be insane to try and create a Dropbox for corporates out of Europe. Um, never going to happen. So I basically, I told my partner, I'm like, don't even bother pursuing it. Um, throw out, you know, throw it out. We're, we're going to pass. And so we did pass on the deal. I'm actually happy we passed on the deal because having to try and, you know, Box had their problems in the U.S. Having, to, having tried to create that business from Europe would have never worked. But long story short, the founder of that original business came back the second time um, and ended up working for me because when I left um, that fund and started my company builder, you know, he showed up and then worked on creating a relationship and his way of getting in the door was, um, you know, I found out that you're the partner who turned down my deal without even actually letting me come and pitch, um, which made you know, his, his whole pitch to me initially compelling enough uh, where I said, look, come on in and tell me about what you're doing now. So again, it's a relationship building and this way is a negative start to the relationship, but, um, but he had been something to, to sort of speak to catch my eye down the road when he was looking for, for his next gig. And, um, and again, it's, it's, it's all about the relationship. He actually he used a different angle to get to me. Um, but again, it, it, it had nothing to do with his business plan and it had nothing to do with, uh, you know, his being turned down or not, it was it was just getting in the door and having a way to get in the door and to, to end up building a relationship, which led to my funding his second company, which he very successfully built up. So, um, yeah, there's all there's all different ways to do it, but it's it's a people business. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that's what that's what it keeps coming back to is you're you're making bets on the people, the the founders, the big idea people. You're betting on them, and then. Yeah, the idea is certainly part of that equation, but what really comes into it is, are, are you building that personal relationship? And, and I think we've, you know, your, your couple of examples, I'm sure could be expounded upon with, you know, 10 or 15 others if we, if we had the time, which uh, alas, we don't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those, that comes through loud and clear. So let's, let's shift just a little bit. Um, and this is one of those things where I'm a little, a little giddy to kind of talk to you about this because this is not a, a topic that, uh, we've really broached on the podcast, but I think it's something that we hear um, we hear businesses struggle with, and this is the idea of of you know doing business international. You know, you stated at the top of the at the podcast, you know, twenty years of of um, you know being both Europe and U.S. and and you know foots firmly planted, sort of dancing between the two at times. Um, and I'm sure there's some there's some jokes there, but you know one of the one of the things that I hear all the time is is from founders. Well, you know we um, we we just got our first customer in Germany or France, and so we're going to open up uh, a remote office or you know operation center, and and we're now we're international, and you just you see that path fraught with danger, and it almost never works out as well as they think it's going to. So start talking to us a little bit about. 
you know, doing business between the two, you're US centric, but then you go into Europe and you even talked about some of the things with, you know, Germany and privacy laws. I just love to hear your point of view in terms of um, navigating those waters. And, and again, war stories of things that have worked or just been miserable failures. Yeah, that's um, that's a topic I think most people in Europe love to talk about um, in both directions. So um, you definitely hit the nail on the head. I mean, there's um, there's there's a ton of companies that try and come into Europe. I mean, a lot have done it obviously successfully um, over. I mean, over let's say even the last twenty years. I mean, um, obviously Apple and Facebook and Google and they're all here in Europe. But when startups try and do it, um, one of the biggest problems or the things that they underestimate is is the cultures. I mean, Europe isn't one country, it's multiple countries. <laughs> and what used to happen, um, there used to, the, the old strategy, I'm going to call it old strategy since I'm feeling old at, the, at this point, but the, the initial strategy, which, which all the U.S. startups used to do is they would go to the U.K. because they're like, look, it's an English-speaking country. Um, we speak English with a funny accent for the Brits, but, uh, or, con- or vice versa. Um, but, uh, but we can launch from the U.K. and then, uh, and then approach the rest of Europe. That often just failed right there because the UK isn't rest of Europe and you can't just land in London, for example, and then think you're going to be able to sell into Germany or France or Italy. Um, conversely, I mean, if you actually then go to those specific countries, a lot of times you might even find someone who's a local um, representative for your business. But if you don't understand that, that country intimately, even if you have someone who's local running your local shop, you're not going to understand what's happening on the ground. And what usually ends up leading to failure is that that individual or those individuals in that specific country who are running your local shop um, are going to be reporting things to you where I, usually as I'm using the America to or the U.S. to Europe um, approach, as an, as an American, you're going to be looking at them and saying, what the hell are you doing? Um, you guys don't understand how to do business. And, and that's like one of the major differences that, that we've seen all the time between the U.S. and Europe. Um, I mean, Europe is catching up, but just the, the sheer sophistication of marketing and sales in the U.S. and how data-driven it has become, just to use a very specific example, um, people in Europe are just not used to that. I mean, it's one of the biggest problems we have um, being based in Europe, either as a VC or as a startup, is that generally marketing and sales tend to be fairly weak um, in Europe, the, the skill sets. And it has, it has very much to do with the cultures and the way, you know, people are schooled here and the way colleges work. So there, there are much weaker sales and marketing people here. And conversely, you have very strong engineering skill sets, um, but absolutely zero, zero, I don't want to say emotional intelligence, but um, zero ability of communicating with marketing or salespeople. And so what happens, um, to, to finish your original point, is that a lot of these countries will land here, they'll hire, hire local people who work completely differently than, than the U.S. company is used to, and they're not even communicating with each other properly. And then you can imagine what happens to the customers. So, so that's one of the things that we see over and over and over again, that someone just you know, lands in Germany or lands in France. They build a team. They spend a ton of money recruiting. They try and do a little bit of a you know PR marketing uh, push on it, and then you know a year in, they're like, our pipeline isn't even full, or we're not closing any deals, or no one knows who we are, or even you know a lot of times they'll spend money the way you would spend in the U.S. you know driving events or whatever, but doing it completely wrong. Um, so again, that's 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 
it's a, it's a very simple thing to see. It's happening over and over again. And it's the fact that Europe is, is multiple countries. They all have their quirks. Um, for example, employment law in France is an absolute disaster. Um, you do anything wrong in France, they strike immediately. Um, conversely, in Germany, um, employment laws and regulations tend to be a problem. Um, you know, just data privacy regulations in Europe are so much greater than in the U.S. Um, so you see, you know, you see all these like landmines that U.S. companies could step on. Conversely, it's the same thing when European companies go to the U.S. Um, I've seen over 20 years, I've seen companies basically always burn the first million to trying to set up shop in the U.S. because um, they do everything wrong, um, and and they always underestimate how much they have to spend to just even get into the U.S. So when I talk to startups um, in Europe that say they want to go to the U.S., you know they're always saying, "Well, we're going to allocate a million euro," and I'm like, "That's what you're going to burn in the first year just trying to figure out how it works. You better allocate like three or five million if you want to be even relevant in the U.S." And then just don't forget that the U.S. startups are raising a multiple of, let's say, three, five, sometimes even 10x to what you raised in Europe. So you might go out and raise 10 million, think you had a great fundraising. Your competitor in the U.S. goes out and raises 50 million. Um, and then you have to be able to compete against them on their turf in the U.S. And, and that's the difference. The U.S. is one market. Um, you can sell in New York and in California. Sure, there's, there's local... Um, yeah. Uh, you know specifics, but it's not it's not the difference between France and Germany, um, you know Brooklyn and Palo Alto. <laughs> so um, it works in both directions. There's a lot of there's a lot of landmines around it. Um, in in the interest of time, I mean, I could probably talk about this for three days. Um, but it is it is the regional differences. One of the things I love about being on C Suite Radio is our advertisers. That's right. The people that are willing to put their brand behind the show. And so with that, I would like to introduce one right now. Thank you so much for listening to that. It's the connections that we make with great businesses like that, that help to feed the show and bring great people like Paul on. And so with that, let's get back to Paul. So, you know, let's, let's, uh, I think one of the things we can sort of focus on then is there's there's no silver bullet here, right? Because the nuances and context of different businesses means that the approaches are slightly different each way. But let's say you're, you know, you're a founder. We use this as one specific example. You're a founder. You've got a company. You've landed a couple of companies or a couple of customers in, you know, in Europe. And so now you're thinking, okay, I want to go. I want to go international, right? So we've already dismissed this idea that you can think of this as international. You have to think of it as country by country. But what are some of the things that you've seen that that have worked or have helped um, people start thinking about this the right way so that they don't come in and do the, you know, the pitfalls that you've just described in terms of going between the, the two continents? So what I've, what I've seen work well is if, for example, it's a founder returning home. So that's actually worked uh, pretty, pretty uh, efficiently and effectively when, let's say, it's a German guy who's been in the U.S. for 10 or 15 years or um, someone who, you know, has some kind of connection back to Europe that obviously works well. And when they try and come back to Europe, cause they're already kind of free, I don't know what's the right word for it, but um, uh, predisposed to understanding the, yeah, the, the sure. geographies. Um, but what I've also seen work really well is when the, either the whole management or parts of the management just relocates for a while. And I think a while, meaning like the first year that, that you know, you're, you're approaching Europe or a specific region of Europe, that someone from the, from the senior management team just completely relocates to make sure they understand the market. 
Um, so they're not just hiring a local manager and then, you know, dropping in every, every six weeks or so, or even more often, right? I mean, I've, I've even seen people that, that tended to fly over every couple of weeks, but it's not similar to being on the ground. Um, so yeah. I think one of the, one of the tips would be is, you know, if you're, if you're having success in the U S you're already generating revenues with your product, you've identified four or five customers or you've even landed four or five customers in a country you better identify one of your senior management people who you're going to send over there, who's going to relocate potentially for a year or longer to help you expand internationally. And obviously, it, let's say it's a U.S. company going to Europe. What you're trying to do by going to Europe uh, or going to any other region, you're obviously trying to grow your business. So you, you feel comfortable that you have your core um, uh, targeted and you know, sufficiently uh, running. And when you go to Europe or you go to South America or you go to Asia, um, you want to grow. So what you have to start doing is, um, is creating, you know, a, a culture for your company, be it in Germany or France, that, that is, is so to speak built around someone who's already been in the business for a long time. You don't want to hire someone who comes in from the outside and is so to speak an island outside of the U S for your business. And so my recommendation is always to take, you know, one of the founders or whoever the senior management is and actually send someone over and then build around that person in that country and with those customers so that, so that the person who's coming from the U S into, I mean, let's always just use Germany for the example. If they come sure. to Germany, you set up shop in Hamburg, <laughs> that person relocates here. They hire the first couple of people. Um, and they're at all the discussions with the customers together with the local people learning together how those customers tick so that you can create, you know, replicable, um, processes that, um, that allow your local business to grow with the best of both worlds. So you need to have the culture from the U S and you need to have the local know-how and you got to build a team around it, um, kind of in conjunction with one another to make sure that, uh, that you're not, so to speak, man like uh, armchair, armchair quarterback, I guess is a U.S. term for <laughs> someone who's going to be based in, uh, who's going to be based in Europe. Well, and, and I think to take it even a step further, you know, to improve your chances of success, if you're, if you're thinking along the lines of you did, which is, okay, we're going to Germany, we're going to go to Hamburg, or we're, you know, we're basing here, then also not thinking of that as the, the sort of hub of operations and extending yourself too thin and saying, well, this will also be the place that we launch to, you know, France, Italy, dot, 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 right? And start looking at all of the surrounding countries and thinking of this as like you would for the U.S. saying, well, we're going to have an East Coast presence, we're going to have a West Coast presence, really focusing on doing this country by country and really getting in and learning the nuances and the, uh, the intricacies of, uh, you know, local cultures and local environments to be successful. So there is, I mean, you can, you can leapfrog that a little bit in the sense that now the way Europe's evolved, you kind of have like, I guess, pockets. Um, I'm presuming that when you and I are talking and we're talking about U.S. companies and startups, it's going to be mostly tech. And if you look at kind of where you're going to land your customers in Europe, um, if you're coming from the U.S., you can almost go into regions. So in, in Europe, you have what's, what's known as the DACH region, mm -hmm. which is just basically Germany, Austria, Switzerland. And obviously, everyone speaks German. Uh, Switzerland, obviously French as well and, and Italian. But but you have the benefit of if you go to Germany, you can also address Switzerland and Austria. So if you go to, let's say, Munich, you can cover three countries. Same thing goes for Scandinavia. You can go to Stockholm or Copenhagen and potentially address you know, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, um, maybe a little bit of the, the, the Baltic regions as well. 
So what you probably want to do is you want to pick kind of an area where your customers are and then grow around there. So you can potentially keep one office and address three or four countries and then go region by region. So what you would want to do is you want, might want to come into Germany and then address the Dach region. Then thereafter, you might want to go to Scandinavia. Southern Europe's a little bit harder. Um, France is kind of, you know, you can do France and a little bit of Luxembourg and Belgium. Um, Spain, you can do Spain and, and uh, Portugal. Um, you're not necessarily going to do like Italy and Greece together, right? I mean, it's, so Southern Europe's a little bit tougher to do that kind of a regional approach. Um, but, but that would be my first recommendation is to look at it country by country, but then also region by region and then grow, you know, quasi start with one country, go to the, the, the quasi complementary countries, and then uh, go to the next region once you have the one addressed. Perfect. All right, Paul, we, we're running out of time because these things always go by really, really fast. Uh, we're going to kind of wrap up on two things, but any other last little tips, tidbits, tricks, uh, ideas you want to share, especially around the, the notion of, you know, U.S.-based companies coming over to do business in Europe? Any, any kind of tie-ups you want to add to this? So uh, one thing that I would definitely say is you have to um, you have to spend the time before you actually come over um, understanding who you're going to be working with there. You have to understand your customers, and you have to also understand who your employees are going to be. So definitely do a lot of prep work before you actually come over. I mean, it's um, a lot of people. I've seen this a lot in the past. Even though they think they've done a lot of preparatory work to come to Europe, they end up they end up underestimating what they you know what they need to be looking into. And kind of that would then be that would segue into my second tip is that that you definitely want to work with local players. So if you're still fairly early stage, um, you know, use the contact of your VCs and whatnot to to get the right people on your side helping you get into Europe. Um, hire you know hire the best. And this is I guess this is a little bit of an unfair advantage. If you're a U.S. company company coming to uh, coming to Europe. You, you have a pretty good pick of, uh, of employees because a lot of Europeans will probably want to work for U.S. companies thinking that obviously the U.S. company has a better chance than a local player. So, um, so use that to your advantage, right? I mean, uh, consider yourself, so to speak, the more sophisticated tech company um, and then get the best of the best here. And you can find out who those people are because everyone knows everyone, at least at a country level. And uh, and make sure you recruit those people who are who are known in the market here, so that they can uh, give you your best chance of succeeding in Europe. Love it, perfect. All right, that's a that's a great place to uh, to leap off of. Um, Paul, let's uh, just spend a quick second on what you're doing now. Tell me a little bit about the company, and then you know you've got such great insights. How do people find you if they want to follow you and continue the conversation, so to speak, with you? Okay, so uh, so the elevator pitch for what I'm uh, launching now, the company's called Re- Receive. Um, so it's basically Receive with a double E. Um, we are literally just launching it, so we're still pre-seed right now. We're going to be funding the majority of the seed round ourselves. So it's my co-founder, Michael Buckus, and myself. We're addressing um, the collections market. So um, in Europe, you have a very fragmented um, collections market just along the lines of the conversation we've just had. So you have, you know, per country, thousands of collections agencies, but you only have a couple of large players that are addressing the whole EU um, when it comes to collections. And at the same time, that whole market is still, you know, basically sending, um, sending paper and uh, dialing for dollars. And what we're doing um, with Receive is we're creating a completely digital approach to collections. We're focusing on, um, on basically having all the regulations in the code i.e. instead of uh, 
instead of doing everything manually, we program it into our software. And, um, and like I said, we're starting EU wide, um, with a technology play versus uh, going country by country with uh, a very manual process. Uh, and finally, uh, something that we've done in the past. Uh, so my co-founder and I have already built a business in this space, um, learned a lot of lessons and, um, are kind of going, uh, going at the market again with, uh, with a fresh approach, uh, to how we want to solve the problems that, uh, that are definitely um, quite, quite imminent, uh, here in Europe. And, um, and when it comes to finding me, I'm actually pretty, pretty, uh, active online. So, um, I have a blog, which is now mistitled because it's called babbling VC. Um, I'm not a VC anymore, but I still write there I'm on Twitter at, uh, at P Joseph hack. And, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty much on every social network. It's just, uh, what's the flavor of the week where I'm active. So, some weeks I'm more active on Instagram, some weeks I'm blog, some on Twitter. Um, if you can't find me, you don't understand the internet yet if you have my name. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, and it's, you know, not babbling VC anymore, but you're still babbling. So that's... Uh, Always. The, exactly. Always. That's an easy way to get a hold of you. Well, Paul, thank you. I, you know, I'm going to recap a little bit, but I, I loved your point of view in particular too, as we went to the, the top of the conversation how this is a relationship driven business and how the relationship is key and the relationship is the way into, um, you know, your partnership with the VC, the investors, the money, but also your relationships are what's going to drive your employees, your partnerships, your customers. Again, it's all relationship business. And I think that that might be cliche again, but it's a nuance that is often lost and often missed by a lot of early stage founders who um, who, who don't understand that it's the relationship that's going to drive it. So thank you for, for hitting that home and your insights, again, unique, um, perspectives on how the organizations leverage relationships and move between us and Europe and move country by country in its specific regions and how to do that. And especially your point of view of, you know, having the founders become part of that new infrastructure, um, seeding that DNA, and then, you know, going on and, and even maybe replicating that in other regions or other parts, but not just relying on, well, we're just going to go hire somebody local who can do that for us, or we're just going to go launch in because we've got a single customer there. Um, I think it's the, you know, the, the recipe for disaster for most organizations. So your perspectives were spot on there. And I just loved having this conversation with you. So Paul, thank you so much for, for joining today and, you know, wishing you every success with the new venture and for a, a fantastic 2019 and, and glad to see things are off to a good start for you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Your recap almost summed up everything. So you can almost erase everything else. Uh, but I, uh, <laughs> I appreciate you reaching out and, uh, it's summarizing so well at the end. Well, that's why we put Great the recap talking. at the end instead of at the beginning, because then people have to look <laughs> at the whole thing to get to the recap. And they're like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Good. Good. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks again. Thanks, Paul. All right. See ya. All right. Thank you for listening. That was fantastic. I love listening to Paul. I just love his perspective on two things in particular. One, this idea of cold calling to talk to the VCs and, and raising money is just frankly wrong, that this is a people business. It's a relationship business. They are believing in you as a person and you have to make those connections. You have to dig deep and make those investments in yourself and in your network to go in and find all of those investors who are willing to invest in you. That's right. I said investor a lot right there. The second is his perspective that Europe 
is not a country. Shocker, Europe is not a country. So we should stop thinking of our international expansion as just a way of dropping people over there and then taking over Europe. We have to start thinking of this more strategically, more laser focused, and I love Paul's perspective on those. If you are interested in following Paul, you can do so. Twitter is the easiest place at P. Josephak. That's P J O Z E F A K. P. Josephak. You can also follow him at the usual locations on Facebook, LinkedIn, or on his website. No P, just Josephak. J O Z E F A K dot com. So thank you for listening today. Hope you got some great tips, tricks, and insights from a VC who is now a CEO and how to connect with other VCs. We will talk to you again on the next show. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.